This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. to have two co-hosts today, which is uh, Jen Paquette and Valerie Willis. I yes. won't say which one created <laughs> this particular podcast, but our amazing guest today is Kat Blackard. Woo! <laughs> so we're going to talk Thank about what we're drinking. <laughs> um, I am actually, I'm doing this again to myself. So we have a sponsor, which is Skunk Brothers Spirits, and I'm drinking their Viking Lightning which is um, made with honey and, uh, sorry, harvested honey and Washington grown corn. And it is basically like fire in one's mouth. The lightning is accurate. Um, So what I did is I put it in, um, I went to Sonic and I got one of those cherry limeades. So I put it (laughs) in cherry limeade like a boss in our drinking with author swag, which we're actually almost out of the blue swag and going into the green swag here shortly. So that's kind of exciting. Um, so those guests, those who are guests get swag, you'll get swag, Kat. Okay. All right. Uh, cool. Jam, uh, what are you drinking? I'm boy? drinking Earl Grey tea in a Nightmare Before Christmas mug because I can't drink alcohol. <laughs> yes. And Val, because you were totally prepared to be on this podcast. What are you drinking? Coffee in the mug that Jen got me about Jason Momoa. I don't feel like doing anything today, but I do Jason Momoa. Okay, well, that's been said on the podcast then. Okay, Kat, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a sufficiently chilling drink, uh, which is the Dark and Stormy. Uh, it is fresh squeezed lime juice, um, Bundaberg ginger beer, and Gosling's uh, black rum. Oh my God, that sounds, sounds amazing. amazing. Much more fancy. I put a straw in my beverage that came with my cherry <laughs> lime. I feel like only one of well, us prepared still today. Fire. Still fire in my <laughs> face. Was, only one. One was prepared. One is prepared. Okay, well, so Kat, for the audience that may not know your work, talk a little bit about um, who you are and what you do. Well, I may be a bit of an outlier on drinking with authors because I am not um, the book published sort. I am a podcaster predominantly and a media journalist. So um, folks probably best know me as the showrunner for the audio drama, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, which is a horror comedy that combines uh, improvisational storytelling in the form of tabletop role-playing with cinematic uh, audio drama production, original score and uh, full cinema sound design. Um, I also uh, was host of the uh, what was until Apple Podcasts changed the genres around the longest running game and hobbies podcast nerdy show, which I started in 2009. Um, We pioneered the um, actual play genre with our show Dungeons and Doritos back then. Um, And uh, I also was a longtime journalist for Consequence of Sound, now Consequence, where I covered um, music and film predominantly. Very, very cool. I love that you're an outlier. I think that's amazing. I'm so glad you're here. Okay, so um, let, let's go back a little a tick or two on your journey here. So sure. first of all, um, 
very much probably like this podcast where I used to sit around in a bar in St. Petersburg, Florida and drink with authors and then had the brilliant idea that I should be recording myself doing this. It was, you know, in the middle of doing one of these sort of things. What gave you the idea to start the Dungeons and Doritos that I'm sure opened the door to what you are doing now? Well, um, uh, yeah, I suppose it is actually rather similar to, to the, I was just doing this and then this happened sort of thing. Uh, I was accidentally on a podcast one night, uh, which was Nerdy Show, which was a radio show that was um, someone else's show. And uh, some friends and I got together co-hosting it. We ended up as permanent co-hosts for it. That show migrated in uh, into podcasts and turned into its own thing that we ran. And uh, ever since the beginning, we've been saying, wouldn't it be funny if on this news and talk show, one day, instead of talking about the latest movies and video games, we just played a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And at that point, I'd actually never done any tabletop role-playing at all. So, um, well, by gum, we did it. And it was uh, immediately the most successful thing we'd ever done. And we were like, well, I guess this one-off is now a thing that we do, I suppose. Um, the uh, copyright infringing title was uh, you know, invented on the fly back in the wild west days of podcasting. Um, not the kind of thing I would do these days. Um, but you know, <laughs> to, to make it up to the Frito-Lay Corporation, we made sure that we paid our dues in every single episode of that show by eating a different kind of Dorito. So much so that we went uh, to great lengths to procure Doritos from Japan. So every single episode, we try a different flavor of Dorito because in Japan, at least, I don't know if this is true during the pandemic, but they used to release at least 10 new flavors a year. That's insane. That's a lot of dirt. I enjoy Doritos, but... I did not realize there were so many flavors. <laughs> oh, you haven't truly enjoyed Doritos until you've supped upon the downright exquisite quality of a Japanese Dorito where their snack food standards are a thousand times what ours are in the States. What's your fla favorite flavor? Hands down, favorite, which one? The, my favorite flavor, uh, internationally speaking, is Intense Pickle from Canada. Just for the record, JM, even though you're not drinking, that would have been a perfect literary briefs question i'm just throwing that out oh. there that, that i have is. other i have other questions for later yes lying through your teeth Ben has right all now. the questions i have all the questions oh do you what is one of the questions that you have right now for literary briefs or well oh, i oh. want to talk about i want to talk about her her book that <laughs> i got to read parts of but i'm waiting patiently so there you go, Kat. Well done. Sorry for inviting an editor on the call. I, uh, She's so yeah. excited about so Neon Bath. <laughs> it was so good. Oh, we're talking about Neon Bath? Yes, apparently we are talking Neon Bath, whether we cool. want to or not. Would, would you like to talk about Neon Bath? I'd love to talk about Neon Bath. So tell me everything. Okay, so uh, <laughs> Neon Bath is an ongoing project um, that I started during the pandemic um, on my Patreon. And um, it began as a just, well, okay. I had a notion that, I'll back up even farther. Okay, further rewind. Okay, spas, right? Spas can be magical experiences, but the way that spas are typically arranged in the States is they're like, you get your nails done and maybe you get a stone massage and it's all very clinical. 
But I had always sort of dreamed of a spa experience as being some kind of weird sort of meandering thing where you kind of get taken apart psychologically and put back together with, through a bunch of like steam and mush and herbs and stuff. Um, and I've kind of had experiences like that, like uh, in in the the baths in Hungary, um, there's some really like wild and beautiful stuff like that happens in Europe. Um, but I thought, okay, there's a price horizon for experiences like this. People can't just do that, especially not in the States. And um, relaxing experiences like that are extremely prohibitive. For example, they're highly gendered and I'm a trans woman. And the ambiguity of like, if I go to a spa, will I even al be allowed to be there um, is a huge question mark that I actually haven't explored since transitioning. So um, I thought, okay, what, what would what could I do to bring a spa experience to someone without them having to go there? Could I do it in prose? Could it, I mean, like I do audio drama, so obviously I could do it in audio drama, but could I do it in prose? And um, Neon Bath was a sort of avant-garde experiment for that, where initially I thought like, okay, I'll do a normal spa, like quote unquote normal. It'll be something that in whatever extravagance could theoretically exist in real life. But since I was just doing it for fun, just to test out if I could do this weird project that I was mulling over, I decided to make it a cyberpunk fantasy um, instead. So uh, Neon Bath is a choose your own adventure that is written in second person, which I hate. I hate second person, but I found a way that I could love second person um, and, and make it a lot like a guided meditation. And the entire thing is written um, automatically. So I dictate it into my phone. Um, so, which enables me to make sure that it is very much like a guided meditation in term, insofar as it being really dreamlike. Now it is highly edited. So I don't like live with those mistakes, but the content uh, inevitably kind of ends up mapping the way that my thoughts sort of process. And I'll pace around the house, dictating into my phone um, and then have a new chapter that ends in a kind of like cliffhangery point and I put it up on my Patreon where people could vote for which forking path they wanted to do next with the intention of completing all of them someday. But I figured, you know, to take my choice out of the matter, I'd let people decide and that be part of them being a patron. Um, it's a project that I full well intend to develop into a full scale thingamajig that people can interact with um, publicly. But uh, there are some chapters freely available currently. If you go to neonbath.com and then you can hop onto my Patreon for uh, any amount and uh, and jump in and see what happens. It's updated so weekly. Cool. Do you That's feel satiated with that answer there, JM? <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun to write because like, I mean, like, especially during the pandemic, it seemed like a really appropriate sort of escape to, to generate. Um, and I, I really, I'd love that. I don't know what the hell my, I didn't really have start with intentions about the genre. Um, I was just trying to like make a friend smile one day by writing some kind of like moody cyberpunk piece. And it turned into this like kind of vaguely fantasy thing, not like Shadowrun, but like something a little bit more abstract, like a very um, metaphysical kind of cyberpunk. It's about the neon bath is a secret place that you descend to a labyrinth of shifting sensations that um, where you are kind of just as I said before, like you're sort of undone and then remade. And at the epicenter of it is a figure called the White Witch. And they um, they are some kind of 
forced to to that remaking though haven't gotten there yet haven't met the white witch yet so i don't fully know what's going to happen but sign up for your patreon until these books go for publication dun, dun, dun. Definitely. Yep. Mm. awesome okay so set production costs <laughs> There you go. So um, let's talk a little bit about going into the Call of Cthulhu then. Sure. Um, well, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was um, a major high school fascination of mine. Um, I loved the robust, overindulgent, and overbearing writing of his, and it adversely affected everything that I wrote in high school. Like, it just, it ruined me. Um, Interesting, interesting weird side effect though, is that like, so Lovecraft doesn't know when to break up a sentence, has no, like there was just like no editorial oversight seemingly in any of his work. It just goes on and on and on, just these drippy dreamy things. No wonder I made Neon Bath, but, um, but I, I use periods a lot. Um, anyhow, uh, I, I really loved his obscure horror like how how aptly he rendered the unknown and unseen in a dreamlike quality that allowed the um reader to project into there in in by virtue of it being unknown and unseen and unfathomable it facilitated the reader's mind to fill in the blanks with whatever atrocious thing that it could be. And I also really loved um, his fantasy work insofar as like, I mean, it's all relatively a shared universe for him, but like one of my favorite books of his is The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, um, which is like this sort of meandering, weird, uh, way too orientalist, but uh, sure, it's H.P. Lovecraft. We all know he's problematic. Um, Alice in Wonderland-esque journey into the dream realms. Very cool. So then you decided to do tabletop gaming and then dramatic reading with Cthulhu. So let's talk yeah. about that. So you were like, you know, Dungeons and Doritos, enough with the snack food. What we need to do is summon a god. So well, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's we, usually a transition I make. Snack yes, food, that's, that's summon totally a god. Totally <laughs> acceptable. Yeah, get, get strung out on, on Doritos and Mountain Dew and then like behold the Yellow King. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, you do, you just, you, you get, you get all the dust off your fingers, snort a line of that flavor dust, and then whatever happens, happens. Um, the, um, we'd been doing Dungeons and Doritos and other, uh, tabletop role-playing podcasts for a while. They'd started, um, the terminology in the podcast sphere for tabletop role-playing podcasts is actual play. Now we do something that is a uh, unholy hybrid of actual play and audio drama. And that sort of developed through Dungeons and Doritos. Eventually we did like get an original score for that show and experimented with cinematic sound design. And we were entirely crowdfunded back then. And this is in the days before Patreon. So we, um, we would have monthly support drives where our listeners would chip in and help us offset production costs. And there'd be a different theme every month. So one month we said, okay, we're going to do a one-off RPG and you get to decide what it is. The first one they did was Paranoia XP. That went really well. So we said, let's do it again. And they chose the Call of Cthulhu. But we couldn't really turn it into a one-shot. It, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of, um, in, the, in the Call of Cthulhu um, tabletop role-playing system, which is based on, you know, the works of Lovecraft, obviously, 
Uh, it's really wonderful and unique insofar as like, you know, it's not a fantasy setting. It's the real world. You play normal people with normal stats and normal abilities and you are ready to die. I mean, like anything can kill you. Um, and you're also, there's also sanity. Like you, you, will, you will lose sanity and your capacity to function will be diminished by that. It's a really cool, um, very interactive thing to do. And it's also because it's like, you can, generally it's set anywhere between like 1920 and present day. So it's a lot more relatable. Like there are, there's a, there's a sort of a historical fiction tool set built into the game itself. So there's lots of layers to it already. And it's investigation based. Like the players are typically called like in the rule book investigators. You're solving a problem. Something is strange in your neighborhood and it don't look good. So who are you gonna call? <laughs> a bunch of random folks that live in a boarding random house. Folks. Yes, absolutely. Because that's that's who solves these things. Yeah. Um, so we played that first session. It lasted like uh, five or six hours. And we were like, we can't release this. This is insane. Um, so it turned into a mini series and because I needed to break it up and I was like, okay, so I need to have framing devices to put this together. I can make it like a 1930s radio serial and do fake commercials. And okay, what if we step up the production on it? So it's got like, even like the role playing still there and the roles of the die are still there. But we're really leaning into the performances. And we always like, our shows were never like, oh, we're just a bunch of friends sitting around playing a game. We always like threw ourselves into our characters intensely. Um, and that sort of character-driven work uh, is what sort of pushed it forward. And that was a big success. So much so that we decided to keep doing it. Um, That's very cool. How long have you been doing that then? Well, it's, uh, the first one came out in 2015. Um, now that said, there are only um, <laughs> there have only been two seasons. There was a huge gap of time between when we put it out and, and when we got around to like actually being like, okay, we're gonna make a regular thing of this. And then the pandemic happened, uh, and we have a live show which kind of counts as the third season um, that we did for charity. Uh, and now we're on the cusp of like in just a few short months, the third series is finally gonna come out alongside a crowdfunding campaign for the fourth series. Uh, it has gotten so much more complex. Uh, the second series, The Terrible Secret of Lot X, um, is one of my favorite things I've ever done. Um, and, you know, we have an improvisational base for things. Um, but as a showrunner, I collaborate with uh, the Keeper, which is like instead of a game master or dungeon master, um, it's like the, the person who runs things is called the Keeper in Call of Cthulhu. So I collaborate with the Keeper. Um, in brief, because if I play a character, I don't, I can't know too much about like what sort of story we're gonna tell. Um, I then cast according to people who I know are both good writers and also good performers. And then we all sit down and we tell a story together collaboratively. And because it's horror, because our characters are so vulnerable, we're able to extend a piece of ourselves into that world. And the comedy and the, uh, and the terror of it is really enhanced because, um, because of the experience of like, you know, living those moments, knowing that if I'm, if I do something stupid here, I could die or it could be funny or, you know, um, so that energy carries through to the final show. Once we've recorded it, I go in and I edit the heck out of it. And I just, I just don't mean just trim. I mean, like make creative storytelling decisions. Like if I decide that, well, since we're splitting, let's say with Lot X, Lot X is 10 episodes over a total of, I believe, um, 
eight hours or so of like recorded content. And we trim that down significantly. And then I go back in and wherever we decide to have the episode breaks, I'll make sure that it's framed. So it feels like, you know, a television show or something properly episodic. We're not just hard cutting someplace. It has a build. Everything has like an appropriate cliffhanger for the next installment to come. And when characters need further development, we'll add that in. We'll re-record lines. We'll punch things up. Uh, I do a ton of historical research into every show. So even if the players don't necessarily have the foundation of, uh, of like historical accuracy that they might wish they had, we can always change things around. For example, did you know that the high five was invented in the 1970s? Like, uh, it, it's, of course, there's been hand slapping things for the entirety of human existence. But in terms of terminology, the high five didn't exist until some kind of happenstance in like a, a baseball uh, situation on television. Two dudes clapped their hands and it was a big deal. And uh, that's where it comes from. So <laughs> that was evolution happening there in the bleachers. Yeah, 100%. It was on t-shirts and everything afterwards and became ubiquitous. I was born in 1984. I didn't live in a world where the high five didn't exist. So um, so when then I'm like, someone mentions a high five in series three and I'm like, is that accurate? Hmm. Uh, and then turns out, no, not at all. So I change the line. <laughs> I do a re-record. Um, and it also has helped inform a lot of a lot of different things. Like I spent the past season re intensely researching the Salem witch crisis um, to to build a deeper a deeper and richer backstory for the um, lead antagonists. Wow. So I, I'm sure as you're in high school and growing up, um, you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to create these podcast dramas. I'm sure that was like you had this checklist oh, yeah. of so. What were you going to be when you grew up, when you were at that stage in school where, what are you going to be when you grow up? Or, you know, I know sure. we get to change what we want to be when we grow up all the time. Every person on this call has changed what they wanted to be when they've grown up, even in so far as starting in the pandemic, creating a publishing company. So what did you, <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? The first thing I wanted to be was an animator. Um, I'm still to this day a massive fan of animation. And one of my projects that I'm currently investing a lot of time into is uh, we hope someday an animated series called Lightning Dogs, um, but um, which is a whole other story. <laughs> Maybe we'll get there, but- um, We may, but we're drinking, go ahead. Who knows, anything can happen. Uh, so then that eventually I was like, wait, to be an animator, and of course this is like in the days before digital animation, you have to draw the same thing over and over and over again. Well, that's not, that's not really as creative as I'd like to be. Now, granted, that was a child's brain. Like it turns like the, the actual act of drawing the same thing over and over and over again is actually extraordinarily creative, but I didn't know that. So um, eventually I pivoted to like, well, I wanna be a writer, I know that. So like, I wanna tell stories, so cool. I can do that. And then it turned into, I wanna be a filmmaker. So, um, in eighth grade and all of high school, I went to broadcast arts magnets, magnet programs, um, specifically um, to create sort of a basis for my friends and I making movies. Like we'd have access to equipment. We'd have assignments that could like improve our capacity to like, you know, learn about stuff like that. And, uh, and that's what I did. I, I, I had no intention of being in radio or recorded arts or audio arts at all. Uh, that is entirely accidental, um, but convenient, I guess. And, and now those same friends that I like made movies with, some of them are still with me and we, we make our own movies, but they happen to be audio dramas. Um, 
so I went to college initially with the intention of doing film. Um, but uh, the college I went to, University of Central Florida, they don't typically let people directly into the film program from high school. So I, um, I went, jumped through their hoops for a little while, had a terrible time. Um, the professors were in large part with only a couple notable exceptions. Folks who had been burned by Hollywood and were intensely bitter and took it out on their students. Um, so I, um, I pivoted over to the creative writing program um, and that's where I got my major in addition to a minor in illustration, which is my other, like my, my earliest passion, um, was, was being, uh, a, you know, graphic artist of varying kinds, something I still do on the side. Very cool. And so in high school, did you make movies? Yes. Um, we, uh, made, we successfully made three short features, um, a horror film, an action film, and a documentary, um, and we're in the in the middle of doing a full-blown feature that was a kind of like surrealist comedy, but uh, we bit off more than we could chew with that one. Um, so um, but that was, those are really good formative experiences. And in fact, the first film we did, a movie called Shatter Dream was at the height of me discovering Lovecraft and is just rife with, um, with Lovecraft material in it. <laughs> Love how passion sneaks in like that. So do you, do you still have these movies? Are they like on your Patreon or something? Cause that would be kind of amazeballs. Not gonna lie. Certain level of Patreon, you get movies. Erica wants to watch one of your movies. <laughs> that, that is um, actually a hundred percent something I've been considering. The only, the, the trick becomes uh, uh, actually recently Shatter Dream was rediscovered. We lost it for well over a decade. Uh, and my sound designer uh, found it. Well, his mom found it actually. Um, it was actually stolen from my house. Like my That's my crazy. home was broken was broken into in high school, and uh, they took like some video game systems and stuff. And like weirdly, a stack of VHS tapes that was like next to my TV. They didn't seem to catch the closet of DVDs, but they just took that, which is which is funny because that stack of tapes would have meant nothing to anybody but me. It was only weird stuff. It was Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Prospero's books, the uh, Greenaway film, and like and movies that I had made. So they weren't going to have any use for this shit unless it was me as a time traveler, which I haven't ruled out. But that um, <laughs> needs to be a short story. Yes. <laughs> but even still, like it's proven itself to be entirely unnecessary because it turns out um, my friend's mom found a copy of it. So we've got it. It's been restored. The question only becomes like, is everybody who starred in it comfortable with it being released? And I'm gonna be exploring that because I would like to put it out because it's actually like, it's actually kind of important to the landscape of my um, creative work now. Um, so I'd like to have it out there. Um, and uh, the second film action movie, I don't think it's up anywhere yet, but that could also happen. Um, that's a movie that I star in, which is super, weird uh, and I also co-directed that one um and then uh the one movie that is out which everybody can see is a, is a documentary film which is like really uh, a very very fucking strange uh thing to have in existence it's called a girl's night out and it was uh based around the premise of what happens when you make over uh four boys to look like girls and go out on the town now, at that point, I had no idea that I was a trans woman. And um, you can tell which person in this video is a trans woman because they're the ones who are saying the most, the, the dumbest things in the most uncomfortable ways possible because they were too comfortable when they were in drag 
And then when it came time to talk about it, we're just trying to be weird to sort of deflect from how much I connected with that experience. Um, it's a, a really interesting thing to have on record. Wow. That's, it's kind of neat when you, we have parts of your life documented. I think, you know, you don't realize when, and well now differently, thank you, social media, um, life gets documented differently. I, I was born a decade before you and there weren't as many avenues to document one's life, you know, as yeah. there are now with the handy dandy use of everybody has a video recorder on them all the time. And there's apps doing that, but I think that's just absolutely fascinating. I think that's cool. And I, yes, I do want to see this Lovecraft movie. So get approval. So that you can make that happen. Will do. Okay. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back with Drinking With Authors. Our sponsor today on Drinking With Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. Skunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrotherspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunk. Okay, we're back. We're back. Um, I'm actually surprised at how quiet Valerie has been this entire time. Uh, what? I, I'm trying to behave. You told me I was allowed to stay if I was good, and I'm being good. All right. It probably helps I didn't drink a bottle of wine before the start of this, that I'm just on caffeine and Jason Momoa. You're on Jason Momoa. I like it. <laughs> Courtesy of Jen over there. So. Wow. But uh, other than that, uh, so so it's awesome though because Kat has done audio, she's done video, she's done writing. Are Is we talking that... about her like she's not here right now? <laughs> Can we ask no, about process? <laughs> I'm really curious because you do a lot of like back end stuff with polishing and editing and all that. But how do you get raw material? Do you do you write out stuff? Do you are you a dictator? Because I know you said for. <laughs> That came out wrong. Um, for Neon Bath, you said you were dictating. Like, how, what is your process? Yeah, the Neon Bath thing is is new, and I love it. Um, it actually, like, the, the writing of it took a major hit because um, of the latest, like, significant Apple update. Kind of like, all of a sudden, the dictation sucked a bit, and so I stopped doing it. <laughs> um, it's gotten better, though, so I'm ready to, like, dive back in. Um, I uh, I typically I'm a pantser, um, so that's that's big. Though I am a pantser who's down to outline. 
Um, so I'll generally like an idea will probably like stumble around my head for a really long time. And then eventually it'll like a Katamari, it'll just pick up enough goop that it turns into a fully fleshed out, like multifaceted idea. Um, I, I do do a lot of uh, background stuff like that's that's true. But um, but also I'm very much like creative lead for all the the projects that my company puts out um, uh, with, you know, with only a couple exceptions. Um, and at least to date, anyway, we've got some really cool stuff coming up. that's helmed by some of my uh, colleagues, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but I love collaborative processing. Um, like the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is very much a collaborative process. Like our actors are not just actors. We also credit them as writers. Um, I happen to be like myself and, and the keeper are lead writers, but we're in very different roles. I love bouncing off of people. I love writer's room environments, um, like for television and film and so forth. Um, I can do just fine on my own, but I, I love interfacing with other people. The, the kinetic energy of that is really important. And I actually had uh, kind of an epiphany recently Oh, one of the pandemic things was that I um, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which I never realized that I had. But in hindsight, oh golly, do I ever. My executive function is highly compromised. But what I realized was, is that an inadvertent subconscious way that I'd sort of like subverted that uh, ineffectiveness in terms of like completing projects or like my trademark move is taking on too many things and overcomplicating all of them. Um, I, uh, working collaboratively is a form of accountability. And when I work with other people, then all of a sudden other feelings get involved and audience gets involved and all kinds of different things get involved that create deadlines and expectations that manage to motivate me to the point that things can get completed. Um, so that's, that's a huge part. And I'm learning now that I've like acknowledged like, oh, this is the way my brain works. Now I'm getting better about setting deadlines and working with accountability in, in that regard. Um, in terms of process, it really does vary for every project. Like with Call of Cthulhu, um, I will discuss with the keeper the sort of things that we're attempting, we'll record, and then I will get like my hands really dirty uh, in the material, in what we've got, um, figure out what characters um, need more depth. And I'll involve the actors as much as I can because they've created the characters like from, from whole cloth, like they are those people. So I want their input on it, but then I'll also, on metal, I'm a very, as an editor, I'm a very, very involved editor. I, um, I, I give a lot of notes, a lot of intense notes on things. Um, uh, and I don't know, I kind of just do what needs to be done. I chase down a lot of rabbit trails and um, uh, I think I work kinetically um, and then also um, am fueled by a lot of uh, intuition and instinct. If I, the more honest I'm being with myself about what I'm creating, the more uh, different puzzle pieces that I never would have anticipated managed to click together, both in my own mind and then also in the world at large, helping the ideas to get bigger and better. I don't know if that answered the question. Um, I, th I think it was a gorgeous answer, regardless of what the original question was. <laughs> she that doesn't was care what the question is any longer. There was so much to unpack. No, I, I agree. I tell people that the biggest misconception about being a writer in general is thinking this is a solo thing. Like, I have to be at a cafe or uh, these gals know very much so that just about every night I invite someone on a video chat and we, we may not even say two words to each other for two hours. 
but it's something about having at least one more person or someone to interact, someone to bounce off of can keep you from losing or snagging up for too long and creating this knot that you can't untangle anymore. It just keeps you jerking forward and you, you lug each other up the mountain kind of scenario. Um, and I, I think creativity and a lot of people, I think during the pandemic got hit hard realizing they're their creativity really did rely on their environments and the people in their lives and having those interactions and outings. So it's, it's definitely eye-opening for a lot of folks. Yeah. Well, I should say I, I do, also- I do go off into my own little like burrow and, and like, right. Like the, the Cthulhu stuff is very like, well, a lot of things I, I like, I'll hunker down and be like, okay, okay. We've, we've done all the work now. Like we've built the world, no distractions. I'm going to go write this script. Or even if it's like, okay, well, for the next draft, we're not going to do it in the same room. Uh, I'm just going to like give you my version of it. And then you give me your version of it. And then we'll pass it back and forth. Like I do alternate. So sorry to butt in. No, you're, it's your podcast. You can butt in all you want. I think it's one actually of the it's your podcast, on, but. Well, it is. That's true. I mean, I, I am, I do get the hate mail. No, just kidding. I say that all the time. I've never gotten any hate mail. Um, but one of the things that I think you said that's really important is um, you touched on mental health. And I think one of the things a lot of people don't necessarily do when they're having difficulty is being willing to open the door to see if there's something that has to be looked at or something from an outside area, whether it's a therapy or whatever it is for that person, having something looked at from the outside to go, is there a barrier outside of you just don't think you can write or you're blaming because the wind is not going in the right direction or you don't have the right kind of music or all these other things that can factor into putting your attention on a project and being able to complete that project. And I think it's it's great that you brought up that topic because I don't think it gets talked about nearly as much. And I know as a society, we're opening the door to that, but I've decided to open that a little bit broader right here on my podcast. So well, for something that exists in the theater of the mind so much as um, prose writing, um, you know, being inside of your own headspace is really important and being comfortable being in your own headspace is really important. Introspection is important. Unfortunately, there's a price threshold, you know, like um, mental health is expensive, um, but uh, everyone deserves it. Oh, I agree. 1000% I agree. So let's talk about your, um, your writing now. So we've talked about your podcast and you write scripts. So you have been writing for a while. What well, yeah. is what is that like? Because I, I of all of us on this podcast have also written scripts. That's very different because there's a lot of show that goes with that versus explain versus yeah. versus prose writing, right? True. Yeah. I mean, it's actually it's really nice because you can use shorthand. You know, you don't have to you don't have to generate all of the material. Um, and even in, even in scripts for podcasts, like I can say like, okay, so let's do this tonally or like part of my writing process is me collaborating with the music composers because so much of the heavy lifting for setting a vibe is, is having the right music to transpose the, the feeling like to, to make up for that, um, that lack of visual input. Um, so I will use, I will like sometimes almost like write poems to my, um, to, to the composers as to like, here's what's happening here. Here's how this feels. Um, but scripts are, you know, scripts take a lot of different forms. Um, the scripts that I write for podcasts are, uh, 
there, you know, I don't have to adhere to any like television film. There's a format that you adhere to. I don't much care for it. I like things to be a bit more free form. It makes sense. It, it makes more, it makes less sense to me to like to actually have to write that way and more sense to me if you like you write it that way. And then when you need to show it to someone for the purposes of standardization, you convert it into that. But it's really important to me to like not get hung up on formatting, but that's what programs like Final Draft are for. Um, anyhow, uh, a lot of my script writing, I think like comes from uh, comic book writing. Like I, I write, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of little comics projects gestating uh, with me at the moment, nothing I can talk about exactly yet. But um, I, I've existed in the world of comic books as a journalist for a long time. And so, I mean, like my, my media journalism career has really defined the past decade of my life, um, doing, doing that work, write, writing that kind of content. Um, and, uh, and the script writing, uh, I've learned a lot about, about these different industries. Um, and I love freeform scripts. Like I love comic book scripts because those scripts are a conversation between the writer and the artist, like they are extremely um, relaxed. They are, uh, it's like, it can be as simple as like, all right, two page spread. Like it's just a balls to the wall fight scene and here's what we need to express, but everything else is like your own creativity go crazy. It can be as simple as that. Or, um, you know, it can be some kind of like different sort of metaphysical conversation about what you're attempting to express there and trusting in your collaborator to bring that to the page somehow in a legible way. Um, the podcast scripts are pretty similar in some regards because I'll be dealing with, um, but it's more like a conversation with myself and then also a conversation with the sound designer because we'll be passing files back and forth that'll have the original audio broken up into chunks and then the spaces where the new material goes in. So like I'll write, the scripts will be like, just the new material uh and i'll have notes on like okay insert this part here here's the time codes insert these time codes here insert these time codes here and it'll like bounce back and forth between um things that are like whole cloth new scripts and uh i mean which is i'm all just doing a long-winded way of saying like it's really cool when you get to write scripts that are like just what you need them to be and not complying to a format um you and know, again, it's interesting I'm... for script writing, though, I think you touched on something which is very pivotal, which is um, script writing, even plays, whether it's a play, playwright, I don't know, playwright, whatever. I've written scripts that are plays, that are teleplays, that are commercials, that are films, that are TV shows. And one of the things that I think is interesting is whether or not I'm actually writing it with the director for what they want to do, yeah. or I'm handing it to somebody because the formulaic part, I think, is when you're handing it so somebody then can interpret your work. Like if you're just doing it to go, here's a script, here you go, knock yourself out, and you're not interacting with the person on the script. Because in a way, some of the work, kind of like when you send a novel out or you send a book of poetry out or anything like that, what you're writing has to communicate what you're saying because you're not having that dialogue necessarily. But I, I do understand that I have many script yeah, writing programs. It, and it gets, it. it gets stranger when you ghostwrite scripts and you're like the bridge between the two that sides. That sounds terrible, actually. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like things Kat is not going to put on her resume. That I'm a, <laughs> I did it mostly for cartoons and animations because I was a three oh, model, three wow. D modeler and animator for a time on the back lot of Universal Studios with a bunch of guys who got canned during the whole Disney debacle. Like I watched them create that first Curious George uh animated movie and a tiny office bit for like two people tops and there's five of those guys in there and they would come knock Damn. at our door for help and stuff but it, it's incredible how powerful like when I write my novels it's all this poetic prose at times and, and I'm trying to catch all the details but it's amazing how a script feels like can feel for those who don't know what they're looking at can feel like a dumbed down version of a novel but it's quite different it's you have to balance leaving enough room for the animator or the director or whoever needs to tell the story in visual format versus written format like there has to be you have to let go of the wheel a little bit and sit in the back seat and just say hey you need to take a left up ahead kind of feel yeah so, making space uh, for someone else's creativity Absolutely. Okay, we're going to switch back to journalism because that was another way you wrote. So what was yeah. it like being or what is it like being a journalist? I said it in past tense as if you never do it. But well, it is. It is sure still, it, it's not that I don't do it anymore, but it is actually kind of in past tense. Like I made it a conscious decision to to like in that part of my career in, in, a, in a large in like a day to day scale back in 2019. Um, I worked consequence of sound for over a decade. I was their art director, I was their podcast network director, and I was a staff writer during that time. Um, but, and of course I was uh, doing all kinds of different uh, uh, writing and podcasting and on-camera work for my network nerdy show. Um, but all that was really exhausting. I was really tired of, um, of being in service to other folks. When we started that process, like in 2009, uh, let's say nerd media was still like, not mainstream, right? It was, it was, it was about to burst. And now, now it is. And now the corporatization of everything is so intense that a lot of the authenticity has been strangled out of all of it. And um, I, I wanted to, you know, be in service to creators. Like a lot of my work as a journalist, really all my work as a journalist, it wasn't just meat and potatoes stuff of like, just like I need a paycheck was, um, was me writing about stuff that I loved and and sharing like heartfelt opinions on things that would really like that connected with the creators who made them and like what makes them special and what what bridges that connection like what makes th these like pieces of art worthy of consideration. Uh, and doing a lot of interviews, which I really deeply love. I love doing interviews um, in terms of like you know speaking with creators about their process and exploring all that stuff. That was I a do real too. Joy. Weird. <laughs> Watch out, um, you might become a backup now. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly, um, bring it on. Um, but the um, I, I I'm I was really exhausted with being um, uh, my the genuineness of my journalism. I felt like it was being hijacked by uh, the increasing corporatization of and and pipelining of nerd culture into the mainstream like it's okay that these things are not exclusive anymore I want to share them I want multi-million dollar pictures of like the cool eclectic comics that I love I love that that's amazing but these like corporate environments are really toxic and they um they take rich stories and stuff and and strip all life out of them uh and 
I didn't want to be a mouthpiece for um, for that anymore. I didn't want to be like effectively a salesperson. Like I was writing, you know, I would be expressing my opinions about um, about things produced by like global corporations and I wouldn't be getting any kickback from it. They'd just be like, well, it's a privilege for you to be here at this experience, like doing this thing and seeing this stuff because you're a fan, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a fan, but this is really gross actually. Like this is, um, this, I'm not a shill. Like, uh, like you're not paying me to be here. You're, you're taking my nostalgia and my feelings and you're trying to take advantage of me and a lot of other people and I'm sick of it. Um, so uh, fortunately, like writing about music is much easier. That's still a corporate enterprise, but it's a lot like that's a lot more direct. Like it's easy to say like, well, a songwriter wrote this and it went into my ears and it was a great experience and here's why. Um, but, but with movies and television and video games, it got a lot harder and, um, and I'm really glad to be done with it. I still want to do, I still want to do things. I've got like, I've got the, all these cool projects backburnered. I want to do this big, like uh, tell all about, um, the cartoon show Doug. I've done tons of research into that. Um, uh, and, and the Barry Levinson film Toys, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. It's like a very unloved film, but it's like really fucking cool. Um, I'm deeply passionate about it. And I want to like do a bunch of like journalistic explorations of these things, but on my terms. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, that's amazing. Um, Let's talk about Patreon. We don't um, talk to a lot of people who have Patreon as a method of, and I love Patreon. I think it's a great way for people to explore and find art out there and support artists because, in, you know, in the past, it's not been that easy. Not saying it's super easy now, but at least it's a vehicle to do that. Sort of yeah. like, you know, crowdsourcing these other vehicles to go, hey, do you want to contribute to this art? When did you decide to join Patreon? Well, um, as I sort of mentioned before in relation to the like accidental creation of the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, we were surviving on crowdfunding before crowdfunding platforms existed. We were kind of like rigging up our own system to do that because we'd gotten big enough, like not, not known, not, not like big, big, but like we had a following and didn't know what to do with it. Like we're creators, not business people. And um, uh, so we figured out a way to make money so we could keep going out to E3 and covering video games and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, or making cool new projects like Call of Cthulhu, which ended up being rather expensive to make. Very expensive to make these days, very expensive to make. Um, but, uh, it like Patreon was a godsend. Patreon was something that we were dreaming of something so ubiquitous that could like help save us so much time. It's an incredible platform. And the relationship that um, that we have with our uh, fan base is one of the most beautiful and nurturing things in my entire life. Um, I I have learned so much about the impact of um, of creatives um, in the world through interfacing with these folks. Um, we're kind of like, especially uh, amongst us, like our relationships with people who've been with us for you know at this point like over a decade, like they're. We don't know each other too well, but we also spent an awful lot of time with each other in a lot of different kind of abstract ways. We've got like kind of a familial bond in in some regard, like not to put too much of an emphasis on like like put put myself in kind of like a position where I don't deserve to be, but we're we're connected in a lot of really weird and interesting ways, like ourselves and and this listenership that we've garnered over the years. Um, and 
and we care about each other. Like I love making art for them. Um, and they're supporting us and it means a lot. Like it really, Patreon is a vehicle for really truly recapturing that like oldie time Renaissance uh, vibe of like the artist and the patron. And uh, you know, some people find it a bit prohibitive to like have to have like a separate login and all these different like hoops you have to jump through, but it's a really great platform for delivering exclusive content and having conversations and like and having a special space where your your fan base can like interact and receive like cool behind the scenes stuff from you. And um, I, you know, we also like we have plenty of spaces that are like outside of paywalls. Like we we always want to communicate with people. We have a a really wonderful Discord server, which I'll go ahead and plug. It's at uh, omniverse.media/discord. Um, Omniverse Media is our production company these days, and uh, um, it's been amazing uh, connecting with those folks. And they have they have supported us through all kinds of extreme pivots in the kind of content we make. And for the most part, you know, it's been it's been really well received. And they have let us know that they value us as creators, not just as journalists, but as as people. And, and we can share that together and it means a lot. I think that is just fucking awesome. Let's Love talk that. about fans for a moment. So fan interactions for you um, yeah. throughout your, your journey, which has been an amazing journey and sounds like a fun journey and could be its own been very story <laughs> itself. Um, uh, what has that been like having fans and having fans for so long because of all these different sort of mediums. It's been such an educational experience. Um, for a long time, you know, we didn't know who was listening. We just knew we saw numbers. And, uh, and we weren't business people and we didn't know what we were doing and podcasting was in its infancy and everything was in its infancy. We were just like flying by the seat of our pants. You know, I didn't, uh, Nerdy Show happened in my last year of college and, uh, and I in like college ended and I was like, okay, well, I've now accrued this weird uh, obligation and I don't know if I want it. I don't know what this is. I didn't intend for this to happen. Uh, do I get a job now or do I keep doing this? And I chose to keep doing that because I was curious where it would go. Um, and it's been, it was a wise decision, but it still took me a while to like really be comfortable with things because who I was before I transitioned was a ghost. Um, I, I made sure that the way that I expressed myself was exclusively in talking about media. I was there to talk about media. They didn't wanna hear about me. I didn't let anybody in. I didn't talk about myself because I was uncomfortable with myself because the thing, the being, the meat sack that everyone was perceiving, the voice on the other end was masculine. It wasn't me. And then I myself didn't even understand or know why all of that felt so wrong. And because I'd been living with it my entire life, I didn't know that it was wrong. I didn't know what the difference could be. So when I had various breakdowns and it was like through a nervous breakdown that allowed me to sort of like begin my transition to like things had to go really wrong before I could make that kind of a change. Um, I started, I, I lived seven years of my life um, as a non-binary person. I'm still a non-binary person, but I'm female. I know this about myself now. Um, and I had this kind of like interesting, like uh, incubatory pupil phase, cocoon larva phase, but like moving around, um, 
talking to people, changing gradually. And the more that I expressed myself in that way, the more people began to pick up on things. And and we'd always had like, we eventually got some forums on our website and we're communicating more and participating more. And through the advent of the support drives to like help fund us, we had more communication with our fan base. Like we were talking about what they wanted. They were telling us what they wanted and we were having more of an interaction, but I was still like, you know, for a long time, I was still pushing myself in the background. Like I'm not a person here. I am, I am delivering the information. That's my job. Uh, talking about what's going on in my personal life is superfluous and unprofessional. Like, that's how I regarded it, which is of course, like, foolish. Um, but I didn't like myself. So there wasn't, it's not, there was anything not to like, it's just that, that I didn't see myself in myself. So that was unacceptable. Um, even when in Dungeons and Doritos, the character I played was, uh, well, and is a, um, a female dragonborn. And I thought, oh, well, it's just cause like everyone else are like human-esque male characters. So I'll be a lady character and I'll be very non-human. And that way, when I talk like this, I can put on a voice and no one will be, it'll be like, oh, this is a man portraying a woman. It's some, you know, it's something else. And that's, that was like my illusion. I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, this is fine. Um, not like, there's a reason I'm doing this. Like, there's a reason this is happening. There's a reason that I am not, we're not doing any videos and I'm very protective and I don't want to see, ha have anybody see a male portraying that voice because I didn't want Jamela the Dragonborn to ever be perceived in that way. I wanted her to be able to live her life without that perception. Um, wow. And I didn't, I still didn't know I was trans. Um, wow. And Your creativity knew. Yeah, I, I mean, considering a lot of the dreams I've had throughout my life, a part of me was always desperately trying to say that. So this is all a circle back around to the fans really helped me. They helped me see myself. They helped me value myself in ways that I couldn't because I didn't believe that I, you know, like that anything I was doing was of any real significant importance. But even though I was just talking about movies and music that I liked, eventually like you know like they that was a big thing for them we were creating space for them people who eventually like, joined our, our production team or people who were like um folks posted in afghanistan during like the height of that war uh, listening to us listening to our to our shows listening to our medieval fantasy adventures while like keeping their eyes trained on the desert horizon in the middle of the night like people who are having big experiences with us and that means everything to me um the the real like first major thing that like really dented me was uh we we briefly did this um a pokemon role-playing show called pokeballs of steelix um which is like a rated r pokemon rpg show um and it's it's very silly and it's highly inappropriate and it didn't last long and has never been finished um but one day we were exhibiting at Megacon, the local nerd convention uh, here in Orlando, Florida, and this person rolled up to us in a wheelchair and they started crying. And I was, at the time, just starting my transition. I had a, um, a puppet made of Jamela in another bizarre instance of, I didn't know I was trans exactly somehow. I mean, at that point I kind of did, but I didn't really realize the extent of it. Um, I thought, well, I can't portray Jamela in public 
So I need to have a, a very complex Jim Henson-esque uh, puppet made and I'm going to wear a blackout suit so that way I can perform her in puppet in, in, in public and she won't be perceived as male. Um, and so this person rolls up and it turns out that they were a huge fan of Pokeballs of Steelix and they didn't ever really consider who made that show or that they'd ever meet those people, but they'd been living through some really hard times as a queer and trans person with disabilities. And all of a sudden here we were, a thing that they'd latched onto, some stories, some people who'd made stories that they really connected with and we were able to interact with them in person. Um, and it was incredible, um, deeply meaningful. And then they reached out to me afterwards and, and really helped me see um, how valuable, like the, what I thought was the dumb stuff I was doing was like that just being present was enough. And that when they saw that, like when they, when it was indicated to them visually that I was like noticeably queer at that time in my like incubatory in between phase, like they, um, it, it changed a lot of things. I found out that they went to my old high school about a decade later than I did. And it had a really hard time being there and being queer. Um, and that like their, their trans identity and my trans identity happened in tandem and in, in, in the ways they came out in different ways. And um, uh, it was an incredible bonding experience and we're still friends and he's amazing. Um, awesome. and, uh, and it really helped me see myself. One of my favorite like memories of transition is when we reconnected after a couple of years of not like, like kind of being out of touch with each other. And we called each other and I answered in my current voice and he answered in his current voice. And we both like had a good laugh over, you know, how far we've come and who we've, who we are. That is amazing. That is thoroughly amazing. And even your journey being just awesome. I think it speaks to as well, the impact as an artist that we can potentially have on people regardless of the art form and how we may not even sometimes realize the impact we have on people and the difference that we make in people's lives and how it helps, helps us discover who we are on whatever levels that is that you have to do that. And that you have to find yourself in, in the things that you do. So. That's amazing. And I think that is probably the best fan story we've ever heard. That's going to win the absolute best fan story we have ever heard ever on this podcast. That is amazing. Wow. It totally be Jonathan Mayberry having the old French woman show up dressed as him. <laughs> Just I don't know. That sounds pretty wild. <laughs> I, I think that is the pinnacle I've decided of all fandom is when people show up dressed not as your characters, which but is epic. Me. And I think that needs to happen anyway, but dressed up as you. <laughs> and that also happened to uh, Jeff Strand. Yeah. But this yeah. was a little bit creepier. She yeah, went to creepy. all the places. He thought it was funny. We told him that was totally creepy. <laughs> 
Well, the person, and, and it's, it's, I think, harmless, but she went, addressed as him, and went to where his high school was and took a picture and all these places in his life oh, no. he'd been and then sent oh, him no. all these pictures. And in the mail, which his wife was the one who opened. <laughs> that's called stalking. It's stalking. It's stalking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, 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 that's really layered. That's really yes. layered. God, gosh. Um, yeah. That's but- changing lives. <laughs> Not attracting <laughs> stage five clingers. <laughs> that was really uh, a great story. Yes. It, it was such an important lesson for me to learn because I really, I did, I did not value myself. I kind of hated myself. And, um, and th- that and, and, and a lot of other parallel experiences that started happening, the more I started expressing myself, like who I really was, the more, uh, the, the greater impact that, that that had. And the more that people like, the more the more my work started connecting with people and that was a really important lesson about um that i mean it that was that was part of me going through the process of of detangling all of the different baggage um and self gatekeeping that i was holding on to um from my life before transition and then and stepping into um you know understanding how when you the, the just the simple idea of when you put yourself out there in the public to tell a story, to, to make any kind of art, like you may never know it. You may never know it, but you're doing something really valuable or impactful. Definitely. Very, very true. Very true. This has been a kind of brilliant episode. Not gonna lie. I'm glad you stayed around Valerie for it. Well, thank you. <laughs> They're you not what made deal. this impactful. <laughs> Poor Kat had to endure talking with me for like a solid hour on that one panel. <laughs> it's awesome. Endure. I love that. That <laughs> you folks were the only bright point of the Phantasm convention. Like uh, that, was, that was a, a miserable waste of my time, except for hanging out with you. <laughs> hey. Well, hey, hey you networking. know, the the people that we met, you the several of the authors that we met i i take that away even you know the events can be fun i love humans i love people i love meeting people you've been phenomenal to interact with you know and i love the the things that we're doing that shall not be discussed yet but um there are things (laughs) there are things in the works but um (laughs) i i think that you're thoroughly amazing and i'm so glad we got to know you at that because I'm able was... to share your stories is pretty awesome. Um, you may you may feel like you you're not a writer, but you are. There's different forms of writing, and we don't get a chance to talk to script writers. Oh, I never said that. No, I no. am a writer. She didn't say that. She said, <laughs> but there's people out there who who think what they're doing isn't in the same gambit. And it's always nice to bring someone on board who does believe that or who has acknowledged it and can talk about it with confidence and, and share their story. Because a lot of people out there are like, oh, I can't call myself an author. Well, if you've gotten an editor involved and you've published a book, whether it's self-published or mainstream, you've taken a step beyond what most people can get to already. It's hard enough to finish a novel, finish a project, finish something creative it's a whole nother ball game when you start collaborating and you keep it going for years. So yeah. it's, it's pretty incredible to, to have you come on and share that and, and encourage more people to, to, you know, be, it's okay. Surround yourself with people who believe in you and your, yourself and, and 
help you create. And I love that uh, Valerie slid in there, get an editor. So I'm just going to point that out for everyone. <laughs> so Jen in her kind. <laughs> editors are, need, are like you, the, the backbone. It's so, they're so important. I love editors so much. You need someone not in your brain. You want someone outside of your head to make sure that it makes sense. Yeah. And if you think that you're so important and your, your prose is, is so like perfect that you don't need an editor, you're a fucking liar and you need to get right with yourself. <laughs> and like, you need to get more honest friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh, do not ask your friends to read your stuff and give an opinion. You need to ask somebody. Or your mom. Who or your doesn't have to show up at a party husband. with you later at some point or be in your wedding or whatever other obligation you might have be a godparent don't ask these people to be critical of your work because not everybody has that suit in them um cat would you share because we have to round out this episode all of the ways to find you because that's going to take a few minutes so we're Certainly. shameless self-promotion go for it outstanding you can find the call of cthulhu mystery program on your favorite podcast player um or at CthulhuMystery.com, where you can be directed to different places where you can find the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. You can find me on Instagram at Cat Blackard, on Twitter at Neon Feline, um, and just search Cat Blackard. You can find me anywhere. If you want to go to my Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Cat Blackard. That's Cat with the C, by the way. And uh, also catblackard.com, as of this recording, redirects to my Patreon, but um, someday it'll redirect to a website. Everyone says that, but you know, maybe it'll be true this time. Who knows? <laughs> That, that is awesome. You have been so much fun to have on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having Thank me. You. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. No, we're going to have you back. I already know we're going to have you back. You're oh, amazing. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> so this has been Drinking with Authors. I am your host, Erica Lance. Our, um, oh my God, I was about to say Patreon. Oh, wow. That is, I'm fine. It's a sign. You got to get a Patreon. Yes, I like how shiny the lightning is on that bottle when you roll it. It looks like lightning it's, striking. It's pretty. It, yeah. it does. Yeah. Um, so this, our, our, um, oh my, that's fine. It's drinking. Words. Words, Words. sounds. Uh, Skunk Brothers City. Spirits. Um, you can get a coupon code DWA10 to get 10% off. They have amazing stuff. This, this stuff is, this will uh, obviously cause you not to be able to use actual words so that's why it's gonna be fun oh my god what's this these guys are hysterical they're brothers that are veterans that built this space on their grandfather's bootleg recipe of moonshine is how they came up with this company the skunk brothers because their dad found a skunk in the snow that's where the skunk part comes in these guys are the most ridiculous humans and i love them anyway they are our sponsor there it was it took me a little while. I journeyed, I journeyed, I came back. Anyway, my co-host has been J.M. the Cat and Valerie Willis, and our amazing guest has been Cat Blackard. I can say real words. We'll see you next time. <laughs>